A woman emerges through an internal door adorned with gilt-edged panels in what seems to be a building of some historical or institutional importance. She's wearing a professional flesh-colored microphone headset and is holding closely against her body a black file or folder concealing the highly confidential contents of her imminent announcement. Once the coughing and chatting in the room have given way to a respectful hush, she begins speaking in Swedish, her address punctuated by the synthesized shutter noises made by modern digital cameras imitating the satisfying mechanical clunk of earlier motorized devices. To the non-Swedish speaker, occasional words are identifiable. Words such as Nobel and literature. Then after no more than 30 seconds, she opens the black folder, pulls out a sheet of paper, and reads a short sentence that ends with the words Bob Dylan. A split second of silent realization is immediately overtaken by a loud collective response from her audience, a response somewhere between whoop and cheer, the sound of approval fused with amusement, underscored by sporadic applause. And now the camera turns to the audience, a mixture of journalists and invited guests, presumably, whose facial gestures communicate the same happy acknowledgement of an agreeable novelty. The merest hint of a smile flickers across the spokeswoman's lips. She has to wait a moment or two for the excitement to subside before resuming her composure, then repeating her statement in several more languages. The Nobel Prize for Literature 2016 is awarded to Bob Dylan, she says, for having created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition. And if I've dwelt somewhat voyeuristically on the decorous proceedings and formal surroundings of the Swedish Academy and their headquarters, and on permanent secretary Sarah Danius's presentation and bearing as her organization conferred its highest honor upon Bob Dylan, sometime patron saint of the anti-establishment, it's simply to set up a non too subtle subtext of incongruity and contra contradiction. The issue, in a nutshell, what business does the Swedish Academy have in handing the Nobel Prize for Literature to a singer-songwriter? Or come to that, what right does Bob Dylan have in accepting it? Clearly, one thing I'm going to focus on here is the extent to which Bob Dylan might be considered a poet. Not the first time that question's been asked. But just to return to that citation for a moment, the thing that first struck me about the phrase, for having created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition, was just how compromised and nervous it sounded. Not a statement of admirable delicacy, as Richard Williams in The Guardian heard it, but a somewhat neutered and tentative compliment to my ears, one which left plenty of room for maneuver. The word new is interesting, given Dylan's folk singing roots and the nostalgia-driven traditionalism of his recent output. As for poetic expressions, it isn't clear to me if those expressions are musical or linguistic. Uh, 
or whether poetic here has been used as a literary term or for its catch-all sense of something being slightly more something than other somethings of the same type. Q Marks and Spencer style advert, rich creamy lyrics drizzled with tantalizing metaphors and served on a bed of ripe topicality. This isn't just songwriting, this is poetic songwriting. I've also been pondering the phrase, the great American song tradition, offered with what I take to be a nodding reference to the great American songbook. Not a definitive publication, but a generally accepted corpus of musical material that includes jazz standards and show tunes, and whose hall of fame recognizes the likes of Cole Porter, George Gershwin, Richard Rogers, Stephen Sondheim, plus a few names from the more articulate end of the rock and pop spectrum. In other words, a distinctly modern, even 20th century phenomenon. Certainly Dylan has staked his claim as a descendant of Orpheus, lyre in hand, charming the birds out of the trees with his words and tunes, but that, apparently, isn't the way the Swedish Academy view him or the stated reason for their accolade. Dylan was actually first nominated for the Nobel Prize as far back as 1997 for having helped restore the vital time-honored link between poetry and music, a more confident claim, it seems to me. In terms of my own take on Dylan, I should admit to having history in this territory. In 2002, I was a contributor to Neil Corcoran's anthology of essays, Do You, Mr. Jones, Bob Dylan with the Poets and Professors. Very much the poet rather than the prof at the time, my chapter took the form of a personalized recollection that located Dylan in the musical context of my upbringing. In it, I ventured to say that if some of Dylan's lyrics were to be considered as poems, and if the usual investigative standards of literary criticism were applied, then they were pretty ordinary ones. In the following 15 years, my opinions haven't really changed, and nor, I suppose, have the opinions of those who took issue with them. Early in Revolution in the Air, Volume 1, his Dylanized version of Ian MacDonald's unmatchable Beatles book, Revolution in the Head, Clinton Halin, a prolific writer on all things Bob, sensibly observes that Dylan remains first and foremost an oral poet and a literary figure only as an unavoidable byproduct. He then continues, seeing him as a literary figure has even led some minor modern poets, Simon Armitage, who he, to write condescending appreciations of his art from a supposedly empathetic position. But then, as Nietzsche well knew, <laughs> communication is only possible between equals. <laughs> well, I don't mind admitting that just a few months ago, on the popular BBC television quiz show where contestants are rewarded for the obscurity of their responses, I was a near pointless answer. 
And yet it would be wasteful of me, given the opportunity, not to reflect on the unembarrassed self-aggrandizement of Halin's logic, since by implication it categorizes him as one of those weird biographers who see themselves as being on equal terms with their subject. Also, in the top Trump's game of quotes, Nietzsche might be a high card, and yet, as my mother sometimes likes to say, a cat can look at a king, can't it? So meow, Clinton. <laughs> and on we go. In his mock leather-bound copendium, An Expedition into the Rock and Roll Underworld, by way of some of the most iconoclastic and unremittingly potty-mouthed language ever to roll off the printing press at Faber and Faber, Julian Cope presents his own eccentric tour through the past half-century of rock music, skittling aside many of the graven images, carved gods and colossi that block his route. Dylan isn't especially in his path, but receives one or two glancing blows and some collateral damage along the way. Like those never done a proper day's job in their lives, refuse Nick blue collar hippies Neil Young and Bob Dylan, Cope says parenthetically, during a tirade against Grand Funk's Mark Farner. Deeper into the tome, Cope refers to Dylan as Bob Zimmerframe. And deeper still, in a more reflective mood, he notes how Dylan's ever-changing muse long ago showed what dividends could be reaped by those with total contempt for authenticity. Cope's language might at times be childish and his attitudes willfully subversive, but there's something at the heart of his final jibe that asks questions about what it is we want and expect from our rock stars, especially when they begin to be taken seriously. The allegation that Dylan is somehow bogus or counterfeit is in flagrant contradiction with his image, particularly his early image as a heart on your sleeve, tell it like it is, man of the people. Yet in Dylan's shape-shifting and role-playing and skin-shedding across the decades, we've witnessed a man not afraid of reinventing himself even when, if, even when some of those new identities were unfashionable or regressive. In fact, like David Bowie, Dylan's successful transformations might be the very hallmark of his genius. Many rebranding exercises end in shame-faced failure, and this is especially true in the music industry, because the bond that couples star is an attachment forged by a very specific set of circumstances, immutable in their nature. Any later renouncement or denial by the star represents a form of personal treachery and betrayal for the fan whose very identity is at risk of being invalidated. Je ai un autre, said Rambo famously though not famously enough to stop Clinton Halin misquoting him on page one of his Dylan biography, Between the Shades, going on to attribute aspects of Dylan's songwriting to Rambeau's disavowal of chronology and narrative. Dylan himself name-checks Rambeau in several interviews and also in verse four of You're Gonna Make Me Lonesome When You Go. So for both songwriter and biographer, 
as well as explaining some of Dylan's personal mutations, Rambaud's name also proves a useful touchstone by lending highbrow literary value to an enterprise sometimes thought of as superficial and populist. But if the, spirit, if the spirit of French symbolism does fall across the lyric sheets of blood on the tracks, as we're invited to think, the influence is either well disguised or Dylan wears his learning lightly. At the very least, the connection feels retrofitted or honored more in the breach than the observance. It's the same kind of association by which we could notice the impact of Malame on Cole Porter's I've Got You Under My Skin, or find evidence that the Rolling Stones' jumping Jack Flash owes a debt of gratitude to Verlaine, or identify Baudelaire as the guiding hand behind the Smiths, there is a light that never goes out. <laughs> Returning to Julian Cope's Zimmer frame jibe, well, to mock Dylan's age via a cheap pun on a brand of walking aid is infantile, offensive, and ignores the very stamina and resourcefulness by which Dylan has kept going. Cope might well be remembering that time when a new wave of British and American musicians were trying to trigger some kind of earthquake in the rock and pop landscape. From proto-punk in the mid-70s through to post-punk in the early and mid-80s, when Dylan and his kind were churning out some of the most mediocre, easy listening imaginable, clogging up the charts and choking the airwaves. Of course, at the time, we didn't know that Dylan had such a prodigious and creative future in front of him. All we felt was that music had found a new and invigorating anti-establishment aesthetic, one determined to challenge, assault, and insult the old guard, of which Dylan was, even then, an elder statesman. The problem with sticking it to the man, you see, is that the better at it you become, the more you become the man himself. Consider Billy Bragg, the bard of Barking, and the closest we've come to a Dylan figure of our own, permanent thorn in the side of authority, ceaseless campaigner for equality and justice, but dogged on occasions by heckles of you've got a big house in Dorset from disgruntled fans who feel that genuine protest can only come from street level. On the subject of poetry and poets, Dylan himself is a reliably unreliable witness, duly providing the characteristic inconsistencies we've come to expect from him over the years, apparently adept at either covering his tracks or striding back across the same territory in precisely the opposite direction. And given that many of his most famous quotes come from the more supercharged periods of his life, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that his remarks tended to contradict themselves from one week to the next just how memorable some of the more memorable interviews were to the interviewee is an interesting question. Try, I don't know if I'd call myself a poet or not. Then try, I consider myself to be a poet first and a musician second. Or try, I don't call myself a poet, I'm a trapeze artist. Or try, 
I liked T.S. Eliot. He was worth reading. Then try, you read Robert Frost's The Two Roads, you read T.S. Eliot, you read all that bullshit, and that's just bad, man. It's not good. It's not anything hard. It's just soft-boiled egg shit. Or to the observation that he might be a literate man, try, I don't think I am. Or to the direct question, do you think of yourself primarily more as a singer or a poet? Try, oh, I think of myself more as a song and dance man, you know. Or try, to tell anyone I'm a poet would just be fooling people. Or try, hey, I would love to say that I'm a poet. I would really love to think of myself as a poet, but I just can't because of all the slobs who are called <laughs> poets. For evasive, read gnomic. For hypocritical, read inscrutable. For paradoxical, read mischievous. For vague, read enigmatic. For infuriating, read entertaining, etc., etc. Though, whichever interpretation you choose, it never amounts to anything like a definitive position or even an evolving set of guiding principles. And why should it? In a 1978 interview with Ron Rosenbaum for Playboy, when Dylan famously described the noise he was chasing as that thin, that wild mercury sound, he appeared to be defining something elusive, untamable, and with quicksilver properties. Two months earlier, speaking to Jonathan Cott from Rolling Stone, Dylan had momentarily turned the tables to ask his interviewer what he'd meant when he'd said, a genius can't be a genius on instinct alone. I said that. Maybe, but really late at night, says Cott a little furtively, as if attempting to play Dylan at his own game. Dylan retorts, well, I disagree. I believe instinct is what makes a genius a genius. It feels telling because rather than ducking and diving or slinging back a flippant answer to yet another predictable question, this is Dylan on the front foot, dictating the nature of the conversation in order to speak his mind. And I'll return to that instinctiveness or intuition later in the lecture, both as a way of questioning Dylan's literary ambitions and as a reason for celebrating his songs. You might think it odd that for 15 minutes I've been talking mostly about music in what is traditionally a lecture about poetry. Well, me too, but just to say it again, Bob Dylan got the Nobel Prize for Literature, so here we are. Plus, I have mentioned Rambo a couple of times. <laughs> also, I checked my contract and it turns out I can talk about whatever I like. <laughs> so, on we go. And the proof of the song being in the singing, I'd like to look at an actual Dylan number. And I'll preface this by explaining just what an excellent judge of Dylan's work I am. For one thing, like all people with a passing interest in popular music, my taste is impeccable and my conclusions unquestionable. <laughs> and for another, I'm not generationally betrothed to Bob Dylan by which I mean that my regard for his first handful of albums, 
those from the early to the mid-60s, was not forged through the imperatives of the era or by any kind of contemporaneous narcissistic identification with the man and his music. I encountered Bob Dylan retrospectively in music's back catalogue, even overcoming all kinds of punk-inspired reluctances and prejudices to tune into him. And I consider my appreciation, therefore, to have been objectively formed, relatively speaking. In terms of my ability to differentiate song lyrics from poems, I offer as qualification the fact that I have grappled with both and have the utmost regard for each practice. Martin Amis recently commented that in being awarded the Nobel Prize, Dylan had effectively won the lottery. That poetry is a higher art form than songwriting is, he said, self-evidently true. The phrase self-evidently being a kind of kill shot in any argument. Just pull the trigger and it's done with. I don't feel the same way because I have no problem admitting that I have derived at least as much pleasure and stimulation from music as I have from poetry and have found in both intimations of the eternal and the divine. I also fully accept that the practice of songwriting and the practice of poetry writing have many shared aims, shared values, shared techniques, shared materials, and an interwoven history, despite all of which they are or have become distinct art forms in their own right. And that distinction colours much of what I'm about to say. The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll is track four of side two of Bob Dylan's third studio album, 1964's The Times They Are A-Changing, or track nine if you waited 25 years for the CD version to come out. Or if you're listening on a streaming service, just punch in the letters and up it pops. You're either deprived or relieved of context. The monochrome cover with a pre-rock star Dylan looking like he woke up in a New England barn or a San Quentin prison cell is presumably familiar to many people, as are some of the songs on the album. And although Hattie Carroll has never enjoyed the same level of popularity or airplay as the title track, for example, it's always been and remains a recherche choice among Dylan critics and connoisseurs. One of his so-called finger-pointing songs of the era, The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, recalls the death of a barmaid in a Baltimore hotel after being struck with a cane by the well-heeled William Zantzinger. By some accounts, Dylan read about the derisory sentence handed down to Zantzinger on his way home from the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Fueled with the passion of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, he began work on the song either in an all-night cafe or on the train home or at the house of his lover at the time, the folk singer Joan Byers. None or all three versions of the song's conception might be true to a lesser or greater degree and all have sentimental attractions of one kind or another. But my preferred provenance is to imagine Bob composing at Joan's place, especially since the chorus of Hattie Carroll 
carries echoes of Byers' rendition of the traditional ballad, Mary Hamilton, which in turn conjures up associations with Virginia Woolf, a compelling antecedent for a Dylan song about a subjugated and wronged woman, though as far as I know, there's no evidence to say that Dylan or Byers had read A Room of One's Own, or that Dylan had even read the daily paper with any great attention, because either deliberately or unwittingly, Hattie Carroll is far from factually correct. Dylan drops the T from his spelling and pronunciation of Zanzinger, making him Zanzinger. And I don't think there's any specific evidence to say that Zanzinger was a drum majorette-style twirler of his cane, as the song suggests. Similarly, if Dylan saw a diamond ring on any of the circulated photographs of Zanzinger's hands, then he had far greater acuity than I have, or access to higher magnification than the most recent iMac Retina display software update. But essentially, the song is documentary in its presentation. And on that level at least, we might compare and contrast it with contemporary poetry. That is to say, would anyone arriving on Earth from another planet, choosing to study the situation of our world through the prism of Western poetry, have any immediate sense of its present day conflicts or the crises it faces? They're all there, of course, in poems ostensibly about other things, language mainly. But without an MFA in creative writing from the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop, how would the aliens know? <laughs> Most literary commentators who have written about Dylan, including some who've written specifically about Hattie Carroll, happily concede that his lyrics are only a component part in a much bigger machine. Though once that concession has been made, the issue is quickly put to one side. And when Dylan's words have been isolated and brought under the usually unforgiving interrogation lamp of literary analysis, it's also interesting to note just how much leeway some critics have afforded them, choosing to interpret the perfunctory necessities of songwriting as controlled poetic artistry or nuanced thinking. Let's take, to begin with, the word poor in the first line, as in William Zanzinger killed poor Hattie Carroll. Christopher Ricks, in his book Dylan's Visions of Sin, defends its use as both compassionate and dispassionate, inasmuch as it acknowledges Carroll's sad situation as well as her factual state of poverty. But to my mind, neither of those points needs making because the song implies both elsewhere in the same way that it infers, without ever saying so, that Hattie Carroll is black. She's a maid in the kitchen of a Baltimore hotel where she cleans out ashtrays. We were hardly about to mistake her for a millionaire Maryland socialite. Show, don't tell might be the most annoyingly repeated poetry workshop adage of all time, but it remains a useful phrase to describe the kind of subtleties that contemporary poetry demands. By the same standards and expectations, neither do we need to be told that the villain of the piece 
is the offspring of wealthy parents, let alone the offspring of tautologically rich wealthy parents, such prosperity having already been established by virtue of the diamond ring. Dylan is pushing at an open door. Rick's comments, superfluous, you bet. Wasteful, but not a word is wasted. To my reading, rich is wasted. A syllabic stepping stone to get him from one side of the line to the other without falling through the gap. Just as poor is also a make-weight, dropped in for metrical convenience. And like poor, rich is wasted in the sense that it's a word from the very bottom of the linguistic food chain. Low-hanging fruit, pretty much the most basic and rudimentary term to describe a person or people of money. In drafts of poems, and even finished poems, bog-standard words like rich and poor, when being used primarily for their bog-standard definitions, are placeholders at best, crying out to be sacrificed for syllables that bear more weight and carry more load. Turning to the poem's meter, and with the exception of the word cane, which is afforded a special waiver, Ricks has written that the verses all the way through possess unrhymed feminine line endings. This is true up to a point, but not exclusively. Surely room is masculine in verse three, as is years at the end of the first line of verse two, unless you go out of your way to deliberately pronounce it as two syllables, years, which Dylan doesn't. In fact, it's barely one syllable, given the way his breath falls away. So that final S is almost inaudible, except on the most expensive Bang & Olufsen, or with the ears vacuum-packed in Bose noise-canceling headphones. Years crops up because it rhymes with tears, almost which it has no business to do, given the schematic logic of the song. Ricks has drawn attention to the unrhymed feminine endings of the verses to contrast them with the masculine, i.e. stressed syllable rhymes of the chorus, disgrace, fears, face, tears. And again, this is partly true, but only when the words are read on the page. In the sheet music, the two syllables of disgrace share the same note, E, and the two syllables of your tears share the note C. The two syllables of all fears drop from F to E, and the two syllables of your face drop from D to C. The notes that Dylan actually sings vary from chorus to chorus, never mind performance to performance especially in lines one and four, but certainly the effect at the end of the middle two lines of the chorus is of a descending rather than ascending phrase, meaning that all fears and your face are, musically speaking, trochies rather than iams. One other thought on the meter, the cadencing of the entire song might well have been fashioned by the stress pattern of the first line or the title, as has been suggested. But did anybody ever ask William Zed 
William Z, how his name is actually pronounced. Zantzinger would be my guess, with the emphasis on the first syllable, as in Armitage, as in Zimmerman. Moving further into the piece, I agree with Ricks that Carol's social containment and confinement are well captured by the repeat rhyme of table, especially when the song is heard rather than read, because the ear can't fully anticipate the word coming at the end of the line a second and then a third time, whereas on paper, the eye's peripheral vision sees it hoving into view. And the detail, real or invented, of Hattie Carroll cleaning out the ashtrays is the perfect illustration of her position in life relative to her tobacco farm owning assailant. But on a whole other level is lame. For it to succeed, the ambiguity would need to flourish on both the literal and the conceptual plane. But would ashtrays be taken to another floor of the hotel to be cleaned out? And even if they were, the word whole only usefully attaches to the idea of status, not to the geometrical stratifications of a building where there are only whole other levels, unless we're being invited to consider mezzanines and such like. I'm being pedantic, of course, because pedantry is a staple of literary criticism. And in a world where every angstrom and pixel is held up for scrutiny, whole other level just doesn't earn its keep. In fact, its weakness is exposed by a more convincing use of on the level in the next verse in a line about the courts, which as well as questioning the objectivity and truthfulness of the justice system, also calls up notions of rigid social hierarchies and racial segregation. My point is this. Considered as a poem, the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll is littered with errors, or at least strewn with chances for improvement, and I deem it a mistake to credit Dylan with the kind of finely honed poetic sensibilities and control of language that literature would normally expect of its decorated practitioners. However, those flaws and faults, as I would judge them poetically, contribute enormously to the song's overwhelming and irresistible sense of credence and veracity and play a fundamental role in making it one of the most moving and persuasive political songs of the 20th century. Had the lyrics been delivered as a series of highly wrought verses and ornately sculpted choruses, its associations and lineages would have fallen in with exactly the kind of traditions that Dylan is seeking to oppose. Rich, white, male, confederate, etc., etc. Instead, the song is transmitted to us as spontaneous and unpolished, giving the impression of Dylan as the humble and unpretentious commentator speaking from outside the institutions of language, the academies of philosophy and the structures of authority, a meek, lowly and simple soul with a heart of gold, a well-known character type whose role is to give voice to an uncorrupted and unadorned truth. 
And rather than seeking literary intentions in some of the song's irregular design and unpredictable moves, I prefer to detect instead a kind of knowing casualness, prompted by an intuitive desire to avoid perfection of diction, syntax, grammar and order, so as to lend the song an unpretentious authenticity and heartfelt sincerity. In that scenario, I imagine its composer looking down at some of those instinctively and perhaps hurriedly constructed lines and considering himself completely comfortable with their rough and ready feel. Hypermetric syllables, unnecessary repetitions, faltering rhyme schemes, unadventurous word choices, mixed metaphors, contrived inversions of the natural word order, all bad marks in a poem. But in the world of a young folk singer protesting a gross miscarriage of justice on behalf of the people, they carry the day. There's a story, possibly true, told in David Remnick's New Yorker profile of Leonard Cohen, published about a month before Cohen's death. Like Dylan, Cohen is also a singer-songwriter who occasionally wears the poetic chain of office, though Cohen's claims to that role are somewhat superior, given his publishing history, his more overtly literary mindset, and the separation he seems to have practiced between the two activities. In the anecdote, Dylan and Cohen are sitting in a Paris cafe the morning after a Dylan concert. Dylan, a genuine and knowledgeable admirer of Cohen's music, asks him how long it took him to write his famous spiritual anthem, Hallelujah, to which Cohen replies, two years, even though the real answer is probably much longer. Cohen then asks Dylan how long it took him to write I and I, one of his favorite tracks on the Infidels album, to which Dylan replies, about 15 minutes. Given that the song lasts five minutes and 12 seconds, <laughs> it isn't reported if Cohen leapt at the comic opportunity of asking Dylan what he did for the other nine minutes and 48 <laughs> seconds. But the exchange, however exaggerated, encapsulates an aspect of Dylan often overlooked by those who would pore over his lyrics, which is his apparent spontaneity as an artist and the way in which a form of creative impulsiveness carried from composition right through to recording is often what gives the songs their very life force. Cohen's response to Dylan's Nobel Prize, that it's like pinning a medal on Everest, is of course a humble compliment regarding Dylan's towering presence in the musical landscape, but also hints at something raw and unconscious, Dylan, the great natural phenomenon, unaccountable and unknowable even to himself, compared to Cohen, the considered thinker and disciplined writer, illuminating manuscripts by candlelight in the hilltop monastery of his imagination. There's a similar idea at large when people say, as they have been saying, that Dylan should get the Nobel Prize just for being Bob Dylan as if it's something he can't really help. I complained earlier about how other literary commentators have shied away from properly exploring the musicological process at work in Dylan. 
Staying with the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll, I want to suggest what those processes might be and acknowledge how much they contribute to the song's success. My first point comes back to that sense of honesty and authenticity, the implied integrity of a stripped-down song, one voice and one instrument, the musical equivalent of sworn testimony. Remember that black and white album cover? The suggestion here is unvarnished truth, front and center, and right from the off. William Zanzinger killed poor Hattie Carroll. No fanfare, no multi-tracking or complex orchestration, not even an instrumental introduction, just acoustic guitar and one person's vocal chords, straight in on the first note. My second point concerns the musical phrasing of the song and its overall structure. William Zanzinger killed poor Hattie Carroll with a cane that he twirled round his diamond ring finger. C, A minor, E minor, C, A minor, E minor are the guitar chords behind lines one and two with the melody strung across them in two descending sets of notes. Lines three and four are backgrounded by the same chord sequence, C, A minor, E minor, C, A minor, E minor, but this time with a rising melody, a generally upwardly inclined tune. So the overall effect is a kind of call and response or inverted echo, one that might be said to embody the adversarial or twofold nature of the topic. It's a pattern that remains fixed until the fourth and last verse, the lines of which are all delivered as the response refrain, the guitar work beneath them becoming increasingly arrhythmic and panicky, as if grasping for some kind of resolution or epiphany. And as with previous verses, that epiphany is delivered not verbally, but in the form of a short-lived G chord, a pivotal and transcendent sound by which Dylan transitions from the verse to the chorus and from sociological description to philosophical conclusion. To my mind, it's one of the most glorious moments in the whole of Dylan, setting up an acoustic platform from which the singer will deliver judgment, make his proclamation of wisdom, and berate the song's second-person audience, the all-inclusive you. Neil Corcoran, in his essay on Hattie Carroll, states, it is a commonly repeated paradox of elegy that it is unusually self-preoccupied, and goes on to say, a genuinely political elegy must be not at all self-preoccupied. Its interests must lie all elsewhere. In the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll, Bob Dylan manages a selfless elegy and one that instructs its audience in a comparable selflessness. I wouldn't seek to, to contradict that assessment in the slightest, but I also wonder if the chorus of Hattie Carroll offers an alternative reading or whether it's now my turn to give Dylan the benefit of the critical doubt by speculating that the you Dylan wags his finger at, the armchair philosophies of the liberal left, as Corcoran identifies them, might include the songwriter himself. 
Is there here a brief moment of self-recognition and chastisement? The chorus of the song taking the verse to task, as it were. A kind of soul-searching that advances the piece from depersonalized protest song to something more internally questioning and therefore more, what, literary. Is that what that shimmering and momentary G chord heralds? Finally, in relation to the music, I want to speculate what I consider to be the most powerful yet undeclared aspect of the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll, that it is a waltz. Counting and weighing the stresses in each line of a lyric or identifying the rhythm of the words as they appear in print is all well and good. But in the end, the only stress pattern that really matters is that of the underlying tempo around which all the words in a song are bent or compacted or stretched. Call it dactylic if you want to put it in those terms, if you want to go da dit dit da dit dit da dit dit da. But it's a waltz, essentially, in triple time. Not that you're ever going to see Ed Balls galumphing around the Blackpool Tower ballroom to the strains of the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll, though that is an episode I'd stay in for. <laughs> but a waltz is what it is which in the framework of the song brings William and Hattie together in a truly unsettling dance macabre. Zantzinger, who by some reports was too drunk to walk in a straight line, and Carol, who by virtue of her allocated role in society was forbidden by law from dancing in such an establishment, never mind with a white man. And so it is by musical implication and insinuation rather than through language that we witness Hattie Carroll and her killer, William Zantzinger, gliding around the dance floor at the white tie spinster's ball in a well-to-do Baltimore hotel. An unspoken image which is subtle to the point of being subconscious and which if I didn't know any better, I might even describe as poetic. On the liner notes to the times they are a-changing, there's a long piece of writing by Dylan entitled Four Outlined Epitaphs, expanded to 11 outlined epitaphs in the notebook that accompanied the CD version so many years later. By my reckoning, Dylan didn't meet Allen Ginsberg until after the whole of that album was recorded, but had been reading him from the age of 18, apparently, so would presumably have been familiar with both Howell and Kaddish when he penned the songs. I mention it because the influence of the Beats generally, and Ginsberg in particular, is fairly apparent in outlined epitaphs, not least in its prolixity. The 11 strong version being double columned and stretching across 10 pages. I'm interested in outlined epitaphs because it's unadulterated by a musical score, which allows for a certain amount of scientific objectivity when it comes to considering it as a piece of writing. So is it a poem? Well, it's more like a poem than, say, a novel 
or a libretto, so of course it is. Is it any good? Well, if I could ignore the fact that it's written by Bob Dylan, which I absolutely can't, I'd grade it as pretty interesting. As a teacher, I'd probably be telling Bob that I'm genuinely curious about those outlines and look forward to drafts as they develop. There's also more than a hint of Dylan Thomas to my eye and ear, especially in the second section. The town I was born in holds no memories, begins Dylan, disingenuously, before recalling the faded and fallen glory of Hibbing, Minnesota. With its old stone courthouse decaying in the wind, long abandoned windows crashed out, the breath of its broken walls being smothered in clinging moss, the old school where my mother went to, rotten, shivering, but still living, standing cold and lonesome, arms cut off, with even the moon bypassing its jagged body, pretending not to see, and giving its final dignity. Dogs howled over the graveyard where even the marking stones were dead, and there was no sound except for the wind blowing through the high grass and the bricks that fell to the dirt from a slight stab of the breeze. It might continue. You can hear the dew falling and the hushed town breathing. Only your eyes are unclosed to see the black and folded town fast and slow asleep. And you alone can hear the invisible starfall, the darkest before dawn, minutely dew gray stir of the black, dab filled sea. And so on. All the way to Mrs. Ogmore Pritchard asking for the sun to wipe its shoes before it comes into the house, and Polly Garter with her dress halfway over her head. As with most of his personal history, Dylan is either foggy or contradictory about whether he took his stage name from the Welsh bard who'd lived such a rock and roll lifestyle, especially on his riotous tours of the USA, though he does acknowledge reading him. Then, Unexpectedly, I'd seen some poems by Dylan Thomas, he says, on page 78 of volume one of his autobiography, Chronicles. Just a page before he says, spelling is important. Not important enough to spell it correctly, <laughs> or even consistently in the poem I just quoted, but important enough to construct a linguistic territory where I-N-G is always I-N, where through is always T-R-U, and where T is presented as the single letter T. Dylan emphasizing his Midwestern credentials through deliberate and determined manipulation of the standard dictionary. <coughs> if I'm way off hearing Dylan T in B. Dylan, I'm not the only one. Last year, the BBC put together a website page challenging visitors to say which of the two folk philosophers was responsible for which quote. I scored eight out of 12, a total which led the website to diagnose that I wear sunglasses indoors and have my own bar stool. <laughs> I took the test again a week later and this time scored seven. By and large, the world of Bob Dylan is a man's world. Not exclusively, but by and large. Might this, I wonder, be another reason 
why some of Dylan's song lyrics don't sit automatically or comfortably within the context of contemporary literature, since at times they seem relatively unaware of the literary discourses of the day, especially those concerning sexual equality. In 1970, Dylan released the album New Morning, an album in which women are, among other things, darlings, angels, babes, sweethearts, sweet gone mamas, little apples, little daisies, honeys, and pretty dancing girls. No offense intended, I'm sure, and at least in Winterlude, the cooking duties appear to be shared. New Morning was of its time, I guess it would be argued, but then again, so was Jermaine Greer's The Female Eunuch, published the same year. In 1973, the year Erica Young published Fear of Flying and Adrienne Richards Diving into the Wreck won the National Book Award, an award she accepted on behalf of all women, Dylan released Dylan, whose track listing included the traditional ballads Lily of the West, Sarah Jane, and Mary Ann, not affronts to feminism in their intent per se, but casual fallback positions where women occupy customary roles. It will be a quarter of a century, late, quarter of a century later when Dylan name checks Young in his song Highlands as one of the women authors he's read or that his character has read. In interviews of the 70s, women could be chicks in Dylan's vocabulary. A word Clinton Halin, remember him, still found permissible as late as 2010, as in the phrase, some wannabe rock chick, which he uses without irony or the heat shields of speech marks. Also to note, Dylan's Dylan included his version of Joni Mitchell's early environmental protest song, Big Yellow Taxi. It's a source of annoyance amongst some music fans that Mitchell never seems to get the same billing as Dylan, when it comes to songwriting, when on reflection, her own early songs were equally acclimatized and attuned to the issues of the day and no less crafted. Compare, for example, the exposed clarity and audible lyrics of Mitchell's Ladies of the Canyon album with the fuzz and blur that smoke screens Dylan's work of the same period and his propensity for taking cover within cover versions. I could have quoted almost any Mitchell lyric from that decade, but I shiver most when I think of her Woodstock as a kind of Blakean dream vision piece, a lyric of innocence and experience with its nursery rhyme simplicity and folky wistfulness, but one that touches on something elemental, political, and prophetic. Some brilliant chick folk singers have vanished, said Gary Von Tersch in his 1970 Rolling Stone review of Ladies of the Canyon, about to congratulate Miss Mitchell for her staying power and without wondering why so many women failed to go the distance. If he'd asked the question, the answer would have been right under his nose in the title track and in songs like Conversation and the Arrangement, songs about hippie housewives, or soliloquies written from the point of view of disappointed lovers or disillusioned mistresses, lyrics scored through with vulnerability and insecurity. 
It's a curious irony that literature is often characterized as a staid and old-fashioned pursuit in comparison with rock or pop music. And yet in terms of attitudes to women, the latter is a slow-moving beast. The American academic Tricia Rose commented in 2012, if you want to find openly celebrated sexism against black women, there is no richer contemporary source than commercial mainstream hip-hop. But she could have cast the net far wider because most popular music genres, from indie to grime to country to R&B, harbour some doggedly unreconstructed attitudes, attitudes that can't be quietly overlooked if we're going to throw literary tributes in the direction of their lyricists, let alone hang garlands around their necks, let alone crown them with laurels. Returning to Bob, I quoted Julian Cope earlier in this lecture, remarking on Dylan's ever-changing muse and alluding to the commercial benefits of his role playing through the eras. In 2012, Dylan released the single Duquesne Whistle from his 35th studio album, Tempest. The official video accompanying the song follows the tribulations of a lovesick young man stealing flowers for the young woman of his dreams and pulling over a stepladder with a man on top as he's chased down the street by police officers and a disgruntled florist. It's all fairly rom-com and slapstick until in a darker turn of events, the protagonist is bundled into a van by the injured stepladder owner and his accomplices beaten unconscious with a baseball bat in a dingy basement and dumped on the pavement. The baseball bat, as a weapon of assault, proves an interesting juxtaposition with the toy cane that ultimately sent Hattie Carroll to her grave. And Dylan, the protest singer of 1963, also makes a thought-provoking contrast with the Dylan of 40 years earlier, 40 years later. At the end of the video, open-necked and nattily dressed, the singer and his motley crew are strutting along the sidewalk later that day. But rather than play the good Samaritan to the blood-covered and comatose young romantic, Dylan sidesteps him without even looking or breaking stride. It's the classic Dylan body swerve, the one he's been performing and perfecting for over half a century, a caution against reading too much into his commitment to the causes and a warning to those of us who would take him too literally to the letter or at his word. Thank you very much.